Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. You know, I think if we don't if we don't do the work that we have to do, then people potentially get sicker and die as a consequence of us not doing that. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have had lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat, and this is the Aftershock Podcast. COVID has had a profound impact on every industry across the globe since it hit late in 2019. The ripple effect is currently immeasurable. In this episode of the Aftershock Podcast, we speak to Mark Shackleton, Director of Oncology at Alfred Health Melbourne. Cancer certainly hasn't stopped for COVID. And Mark speaks to us about the impact it is having on hospital staff, patients, and their family members. This is part one of our pandemic series, where we hear from a range of medical experts speaking to the impact of COVID on their particular field. Yeah, thanks, uh, Suze, for the opportunity to talk about it. It's been, uh, it's, it's been one of those weeks, and as a consequence of what happened to us in 2020, we put in a lot of processes and systems about how to deal with COVID outbreaks within the hospital. And we've had to, you know, we haven't had to actually draw on those protocols for a while, but we've, uh, we're very grateful that we developed them because we've had to implement them very, very quickly this week. So we've had a situation which was, I think, been announced in the media, um, which, you know, many hospitals have been affected by, so it's not like it's a new thing anymore, uh, where one of our staff members, um, uh, was found to be COVID positive, um, unknown source of acquisition of the virus. So, you know, this virus is just out there in the community and even with, um, you know, healthcare workers abiding by rules around masking and distancing, it's still, uh, it's, it's, it's so tricky. It's still very possible to acquire it. But this uh, particular staff member had interacted with a large number of other staff members during the potential period of being infectious and really big chunks of the hospital got shut down for several hours while we were trying to understand the extent of the exposures across the hospital. There are literally potentially hundreds and hundreds of staff that were affected. It's ended up that um, only about 100 staff are now thought to have well, what's classified as a high-risk exposure that requires furloughing for two weeks, that is you know, going home and being isolated for two weeks and having multiple testing. Uh, at the beginning, it was like many hundreds of staff that were being that were being evaluated for that possibility. So, and while that was all rolling out, um, obviously that takes you know, several hours to figure that out. We essentially had to, you know, shut down many areas of the hospital because we didn't know who had been highly exposed and who had not, and who needed to be furloughed and who didn't. And even just while you figured that out, we had to assume that everyone was potentially highly exposed. And my role at the Alfred is in running the cancer service, running medical oncology. And I literally had, you know, junior as well as senior medical staff, um, as well as nursing staff, literally locked in their offices, uh, wearing N95 masks, uh, waiting to find out whether they had had high risk exposures that would require furloughing or whether they could get back to a more kind of COVID normal type of operation. So, so we, we have an attitude of being very, very jumpy about this and, um, and really shutting down 
things as quickly as possible when we have to, to even while we're understanding what we're dealing with. Hopefully this will just stop there and it won't uh, roll out to a larger number of people across the hospital and particularly get into our patient population, which is always the, always the concern. Yeah, I, it's really good to hear, obviously, that the medical team are almost well-versed. It's kind of frightening, but also a good thing. Um, and it's not the first time or first rodeo, I guess. But for patients coming in, it, it is their first time. It is their first exposure. They're, it's their first potential exposure to a hospital um, as it is. So how do you and your team um, communicate differently with patients? And I mean, it's a frightening thing. It's a frightening thing being a family member, being in a hospital. Um, has it changed the way you and your team uh, talk to patients and um, almost like different bedside manner? Yeah. So I think there's two parts to that, uh, no and yes. So I think it's really important that people understand that just because COVID is out there and just because it occasionally gets into hospitals, there are you know incredibly tight protocols and actually literally physical barriers that separate those patients from the rest of the hospital. I mean, there, I mean, there are positive virus patients in hospital in you know many of the major hospitals um, across the country or world, but um, it's possible, and we really proved this last year, where we had you know large, large numbers of patients that were admitted and very, very sick. Um, but you know, we were actually, I think, spectacularly effective in keeping COVID out of the rest of the hospital. So, and when we had we had incredibly tight restrictions, um, particularly around the area that I work in on the um, in the in the oncology area, uh, and and they worked. And you know, we're actually quite proud of the fact that we really protected our patients um, uh, magnificently last year. Once we put in place the protocols to protect them, they really worked. And, and we had multiple lines of evidence of that where you know, even there were occasional cases that got, that, that got kind of close that we managed to, to, to pick up, but, our, but the processes that we put in place did pick them up. Um, so those cases never got close to, our, to, to the areas where we treat cancer patients. So for me, that's actually really reassuring and it should be reassuring to the wider community that you actually don't need in fact, it's, it's, it's a bad thing at the moment to avoid seeking health care if you've got any concerning problems. So, you know, if you've got a sore spot or that's not going away or you've got a headache that's not going away or, I don't know, other problems you're losing weight, just your health is not, you know, there's something wrong with your health and, it needs, and, you, and you know it needs to be looked into. It's absolute madness not to get it looked into at the moment because the protocols that we have in place to protect people from COVID exposure in that context are, are amazing and they work and they work really well. I mean, we basically proved it last year when we had, you know, crazy high numbers of cases. Are you seeing so, people not come in, um, current cancer patients, for instance, not coming in for regular checkups that they need to come in for? Yeah, we are. So this is, the, this is I guess, the point I'm coming to is that there's actually very solid data that shows that people are, you know, scared of accessing healthcare, appear to, here, people appear to be scared of accessing healthcare at the moment um, through their GPs or even presenting to hospital because they're afraid of COVID. In fact, it's, it's actually very safe to access the healthcare system um, at the moment and that it's far more dangerous to your health to ignore some sort of symptom or physical problem that you have or even a psychological problem that you have when there's lots of those floating around. Um, it's actually far more dangerous to your health 
to ignore those problems and to, you know, hide from, you know, to like not go and see your doctor or not go to the hospital if, you, if you're feeling really unwell, it's far more dangerous to your health to have that attitude of hiding from the healthcare system than it is to catch COVID and get sick from it. And I think the, the message in the media needs to be different as well to encourage that and because uh, it's certainly happening. And I believe it's happening in New South Wales at the moment where they've closed breast cancer screenings. And why would they do that when we know how important early detection is? That's a good question. Um, uh, so breast screening is an interesting and separate one, but it, it, I mean, it's clearly important. Um, the impact of shutting down widespread community screening is is going to be real and is going to be um, uh, is going to be is going to play out over time, but it's probably not quite as big an impact as people ignoring actual existing symptoms and problems that they have, which is different from screening. Yeah, so screening is a person that has is perfectly well, has absolutely no symptoms, um, and then and then going gets a test just in case, and 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 and, and we know that it works. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But if, uh, if we have to choose to, um, uh, you know, cut down some health services, then um, you're probably better to shut down some types of screening than, and focus more on encouraging people that have actual symptoms to come and get care. But there are all sorts of reasons why some of those screening programs have had to be reduced, even things like staff shortages and the ability to actually, you know, provide the resources that are needed um, has also been impacted as well. And what impact on our medical system do you see this having in the years to come? So when COVID does become very different to what it is now, and hopefully there's not the lockdowns and the ever you know the vast majority are vaccinated and it becomes a part of life, what impact do you see the delay in not only cancer diagnosis but um, heart disease and all kinds of um, other problems that mental health takes on our physical bodies um, do you see having an impact on our healthcare system? You know, in, in the field, we're talking about this thing called the surge. <laughs> so it's basically the surge in a whole range of very general medical problems um, that are related to mostly to patients presenting late despite having symptoms um, that, 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 you know, if they had presented earlier, um, and diagnoses could have been made earlier. The, the sort of you know, complications and 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 um, issues related to whatever the disease was uh, could have could have been much reduced. What we think we're going to end up with is a higher proportion of the population that, for the rest of their lives, will live with some sort of chronic disease that will impact their health and well well being and perhaps even longevity. Um, I mean, again, it's the same point. Like. For many medical problems, I mean, sort of gets back to your, to your point about screening. Um, for many medical issues, the sooner we know about them, um, the less damage they are, they are likely to have done generally to a person um, and the more treatable and often curable they are. I mean, the reason that on average, you know, human beings live nearly twice as long as they did um, basically 100 years ago is because of our ability to, you know, identify, diagnose and treat medical problems earlier and also obviously much more effectively, but certainly so that we end up with a lot less, you know, serious chronic disease that shortens the life of large proportions of the population. So because of later presentations, because of people being diagnosed when whatever the disease is, is, is a much more advanced state and itself has caused a lot more secondary complications, many of which can be irreversible, 
Um, we just think we're going to end up with relatively large populations of people that have just got chronic disease that they'll live with for the rest of their life, even when COVID is like an afterthought. What we don't, I think, have a handle on yet is what the magnitude of that, like how, what, what, what's going to be the change. I mean, there's always population of people in our community that, you know, does live with chronic disease. I mean, you know, to some level, we all kind of pick up little nicks and dings over the over the years as we, as we as we age. Um, just a, almost a normal part of being human. But what we don't know is um, what's going to be the increase in the portion of the population that has you know really impactful chronic disease that's going to reduce their ability to be you know productive and contributing members of our society. Um, it's it, it, it's going to be a percentage for sure. Um, and it's going to go on for years because of that. Just depends how big the percentage is as to what the what the resource impacts are and, and general societal impacts are. Unfortunately, a few years ago, we spent a lot of time on the oncology ward um, with my mum, and I turned up whenever I liked um, and brought her food and all kinds of things and sat with her, um, as did my family. And you would have obviously pre-COVID seen family members and patients interacting, um, walking around when they can. Um, What is the difference now that visiting with patients has and have you seen an impact on current patients? This is a great topic to talk about because so from our point of view as healthcare providers, I would actually say almost the most traumatic aspect of this pandemic has been... And, you know, particularly for those of us who work in, you know, kind of high acuity um, medical settings where, you know, patients are in hospital and it's, you know, some, often life or death and the involvement of families and loved ones is just so critical in the whole, in the whole dynamic of managing people in, in, the, in those situations. Um, in fact, on the medical side, we often rely on families to help us decide what to do. Yeah, um, Absolutely. Really, like it's actually critical. So, and so even for us, like developing those relationships with families, even if the people are only with us for a short time, we still do actively seek to develop good relationships with the family because we, we, we're kind of all part of the same team and we're kind of working towards the same goal and we need the families and, and loved ones um, um, on board. Um, uh, so that, that, that's even just for good medical management, um, let alone to provide um you know, support and comfort to the person who's actually going through what they're going through, sitting there in the hospital bed. So I can say that the almost the most impactful and traumatic aspect of this pandemic for us has been the requirement to restrict the access of families and visitors to, to patients that are with us. It's actually impeded our ability to make the best medical decisions um, uh, for those patients because we it's just logistically been really hard to get families involved because we just we, don't, we haven't been able to see them. And there's a lot of telehealth and we're using, you know, iPads and all sorts of different technologies to try and, but it's not the same. Yeah, and not being able to involve families and that's been just very, very challenging for us. Um, it actually makes, like my medical staff have been, you know, working heaps of overtime, long hours, um, even just for that fact, because trying to work out how to, you know, get a get a bunch of family members together on a like a Zoom call or a Skype call to have the interaction. It's like just logistically yeah. really tricky, um, and so you know they're often having to do these have these really important meetings at kind of weird times of the day, and um, uh, it's just been very very difficult for them. 
Um, but I would say, so that's been really challenging um, just because we're trying to practice the best medicine that we can practice and, and, and that's been a limitation. But I would say the biggest impact um, is the fact that, you know, people in, the, in the, those sort of life and death moments and particularly people who you know, actually are dying or where there's no sort of more active treatment possible to, to require such restricted uh, visitation of those people by family and loved ones is actually devastating. I mean, I, I mean, for the families, I just I can't even imagine how awful it must be. I can definitely speak for the hospital staff. I mean, we've had we've had staff in, you know, um, on um, sick leave, on you know, extended psychological, you know, post post traumatic stress leave, in counselling, um, just like so traumatised by their experience are so mostly reflecting back to 2020 here. Like this is, you know, like, like, you know, we're like a year down the track and these issues are still psychologically playing out. Our staff, you know, we had many staff that were just so devastated by, you know, experiences and situations that they had to support patients through when they, you know, without the help of their families, which is, you know, basically impossible in, 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 in that context. And it was just so gut-wrenching for them. I mean, I've been in like, you know, staff counselling um, group sort of meetings where, you know, like really senior, experienced, high-level staff are just like breaking down and crying as they recount their, you know, experience in, you know, looking after patients in those in those difficult situations without being able to connect with families. And, yeah, they're incredibly traumatic for the staff. And, um, yeah, they're, I mean, they're probably people who, probably won't won't come back to work I think um, because it's just too been such, such a devastating experience for them and I would particularly I think the most affected have been the been, been the nursing staff I mean you know nurses are just generally heroes anyway but um, they have been so exposed um, to, to those situations and the other group has been um, particularly also our um, junior medical staff as well, like the, these, the, the, like these young gun doctors coming through the system, who are you know, amazing, amazingly talented young people who are really just uh, um, very, very affected by those by those sorts of situations as well. And it's just awful, but there's no other solution because um, we know for an absolute fact that visitors have brought COVID into hospitals. It's it's a fact, like it's actually known. And you know, and if particularly on, on my ward where we have, in, in the cancer area, we have lots of people that have got very weak immune systems. I mean, it could literally take just one visitor bringing in COVID um, and we could have, you know, 30 or 40 patients dead within a month. Like it actually could happen. Will this change um, so, with vaccination? Because you can still get COVID with vaccination. So are we work, going into a world where visiting hours have potentially changed forever? It's a fantastic question. And I think the answer is, Possibly, possibly. Um, uh, I guess we're going to see how that shakes out. But yeah, it's been pretty pretty disappointing to see the data coming through that indicates that although vaccination is you know basically a no brainer if you want to um, protect yourself um, from getting really sick with COVID and to protect the hospital system from having to look after you, um, that um, it doesn't seem to have the same magnitude of effect in, in terms of reducing risk of transmission. Um, I guess we don't fully know the data. It's still, it's, it's still kind of playing out. So I think it's an open question. But, um, uh, you know, it is possible that 
there will be a future which is like a COVID normal future, <laughs> which is a bit different from the pre-COVID past. Um, and that that might include, you know, some level of increased restrictions around, um, around visitors. I think that's I think that's possible. I do. Very, very frightening to think. It breaks my heart because I just know that um, for me and mum, being able to be there whenever we needed to was, was so important, especially um, as we saw patients go downhill very, very quickly sometimes. Um, some come home to pass away. Others, it's too late and they remain in hospital and having restrictions around that is, is really heartbreaking. I mean, particularly people that are, you know, really progressing into end-of-life care situations. I think what happened is that we, what, what, what one potential response to that might be that we will much more proactively try and manage those patients outside of hospital settings where for the vast majority of patients the goal is still, is still cure or, or sort of active treatment. Um, if a patient really is on a, what we call end-of-life pathway, um, then, you know, I think we'll be much more proactive about working out ways to support that person and particularly their family to, to care for those people outside of traditional hospital settings. I think that'll be increasing. I mean, it's already kind of important, but I think the level of importance of that will go up massively if we have this sort of COVID normal future where there are real restrictions around, around visitors, which, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's a, sort of a general high-level issue that the health system is thinking about at the moment is to can we somehow increase the proportion of patients that, you know, historically we would have managed in acute hospital patient settings. Can we, you know, using technology and more kind of flexible workforce resourcing and, and placement, can we uh, actually work out how to just generally manage more patients at home in the community? And there are, there are lots of work going in to try and work out how to do that. But I think that that sort of end-of-life care group would be probably the highest priority of all, um, particularly as pertains to COVID for the reasons that we've alluded to. Mm, Absolutely. It's a pretty, in being in Melbourne, we've been locked down for so long, everyone's pretty over it. It's pretty bleak. Um, I know sometimes I turn up to work being not being a medical professional and me and a lot of my colleagues are pretty just fed up, I guess. But we don't look after... um, we don't have lives in our hands and we're not saving lives. You and your team literally do save lives for a living. Um, when you guys are, and the, the, I can't even just imagine being oncologists, you often do give, unfortunately, pretty bad news at the best of times, let alone now and potentially in the years to come where you are giving news of potentially curable diseases, uh, but they've presented too late or whatever the situation is. How do you guys switch off outside of work? How do you get draw energy from, from somewhere when things are so tough? <laughs> it's a great question. I'm trying to think of the last time I switched off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, look, it can be really challenging. Um, I guess I can mainly speak to the area of oncology, which, as you says, does involve a lot of pretty emotionally charged situations. I think that oncology... And I'll, I'll definitely speak for the for, for the for my nursing colleagues as well, who are you know often quite you know if not more similarly sort of affected. Um, so I think the first thing it does attract a certain type of personality or person, um, and I mean we can talk about what that person is, but um, I think one of the characteristics you've got to have is a ability to just be in the moment with whatever you're doing 
and not uh, and, and and try and minimise the degree to which you carry the experience of the previous patient um, to the next patient. It's really it's a it's, it's a really I mean it's, so it's generally a critical skill of doctors that you kind of I don't know I don't know if you learn it or you get taught it or there's some adaptation that you do when you're doing those sort of training years. But I think oncologists are generally actually quite good at it. We have a pretty good ability to you know, kind of move on and, and the other thing is to focus and that, and so that includes when you, when you leave work as well. Yeah. So you just, it's the same sort of kind of, um, kind of psychological approach, I suppose, to life. Right? So you just, you know, basically you don't dwell on things. <laughs> um, and you just try and focus on what you're doing it when you're doing it, um, put in place all the, all the follow-up stuff that needs to be done, but then don't really think about it much anymore because because you've got to move on to the next thing. Um, and I'm always very conscious of being in the moment with the patient that I'm with when I'm with them, but that I've got, you know, as soon as that patient leaves the room or I leave their room, um, I'm, I, I, I'm absolutely committed to the next patient that I'm about to see. And I don't want, you know, don't carry the psychological state that might have arisen in one consultation to the next consultation, because you've got the same um, commitment and response, commitment to and responsibility for for the next person as you had for the one that you've just seen. So, and I think that's that's a general principle of medical practice, but it's really heightened in, in oncology. And I think oncologists generally do it really well. Um, and I don't know whether we're just selected because that's our character, or whether we just whether whether we train, whether we get trained, or whether people who can't do that just don't get into oncology in the first place. I'm not really sure, but, um, but we do try and take the same sort of attitude, I think, um, um, away from work. I mean, when we're talking behind the scenes, even if we've had really bad clinics, I mean, we do discuss and, um, you know, debrief and discuss our, you know, really challenging bad cases. But, you know, we also just have like normal chit chat behind the scenes as well. Like we don't, you know, we still talk about the, I don't know, we still talk about the footy. We still talk about our, kids we still talk about um you know our um you know just whatever we're doing on the weekend so it's not all like you know we, we do try and move on and have some level of balance in the, in the types of thoughts that come through our heads so yeah and i mean and i guess you know different 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 of us do will do different things at home to to just sort of get away from it just but just like normal stuff like it's nothing specific or or um or different or, or particularly peculiar. Some of us exercise, many of us don't exercise enough. Um, so the same, the same types of um, issues that just general folks deal with. But yeah, but, you, but you've got to be able to not carry stuff with you. That's a really important principle in medical practice generally, and particularly in oncology. Well, thanks, Mark. Is there anything else you wanted to get across? Probably just to like, thank everyone for their ongoing efforts. I hope that some of the you know, relaying some of these experiences of what's going on behind the scenes in hospitals helps people to appreciate why it's so important for people to abide by the rules that are you know coming out of the health department. Um, you know, the vast majority of people don't see what actually goes on behind the scenes in hospitals. They don't have a visceral understanding of the impact of... Um, you know, when you do get a community transmission and it comes into a hospital and there's a, like the impacts of that. So just imagine, you know, if in your work, 
you sort of came in one day, there were all these massive deadlines that, you know, 10 of you had to deliver on uh, and you're all sort of working in a team in your workplace to try and meet those deadlines to, you know, support the business and keep things going. Like imagine if all of a sudden, and, and, and let's say that, you know, if you didn't meet the deadlines, you were going to all lose your jobs and the business is going to collapse. So there was some, like it was really important that you met those deadlines. So imagine if you turned up to work and only half of you were there and you all of a sudden had to do twice as much work to meet those deadlines. And if you didn't meet them, then bad things were going to happen. So that's what it's like in hospitals when we have these mass furloughing situations and many, many staff have to go home. We have basically it's the same number of staff that are left behind who basically have to do like twice the amount of work. And, you know, think if we don't, if we don't do the work that we have to do, then people potentially get sicker and die as a consequence of us not doing that. But that's actually what it's like behind the scenes in hospitals. So the more that people can think about that when they say, oh, can I be really bothered wearing a mask now? Do I really have to stay away from this person or keep my distance from this person at the supermarket? Do I really have to, you know, try and you know, when I'm walking past someone on the street, do I really have to make sure I keep my distance from them? Like, just try and reflect on why those rules are in place and, and the impact of us generally as a community not obeying with them um, as, as, as pertains to the, you know, to those people that are in the healthcare system at, at the coalface being massively, massively affected. Um, those um, kind of slack community attitudes around respecting COVID rules have actually killed healthcare workers who are just trying to, you know, help people who are sick in hospital. That's, that's, that's actually happened. So as tough as it is for everyone, and believe me, it's tough for everyone, <laughs> um, um, it, it's also tough for people in, in the healthcare system. And if we don't protect them, then, um, you know, the, the consequences that we have a system that's completely overrun. And if that happens, then it doesn't matter what's wrong with you or what's wrong with your family member. Um, if the health system is completely overrun, then 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 you won't be able to get you won't be able to get the care that you need, no matter what's wrong with you. So thanks for everyone for doing the best they can to to support the rules. It's massively important, and um and and good luck to everyone. Thanks, Mark. I think that's such fantastic perspective, and certainly gives me and probably many listeners something to think about. So thank you, and thank you for taking time out of a very busy schedule to to chat with us. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you to Mark and all our healthcare workers for the insight you've given us into life amongst hospital wards in the pandemic. A lot of us are sheltered from the front line. However, it's important to know what is actually occurring every day and how the pandemic is impacting non-COVID parts of our hospitals. Until next time, I'm Susie Neat, and this has been the Aftershock Podcast.